Welcome, everyone, to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. On this week's episode, we welcome Juan Vendania. Juan is someone who carries around a message of energy, engagement, and action. Uh, I wasn't sure what the, the conversation was going to be like, given that's, you know, some of the terms I knew about him, but he's someone who has incredible energy that is infectious in a way that makes me rethink about what the energy that I'm giving off every single day. He's someone who um, is action oriented. So one of the things that you'll hear in a lot of the conversation we have is specific actions you can take to make the change in your life that you want to make. Uh, Juan is an author and we'll dive into one of his books here. He's a speaker who mostly focuses on uh, high school students and university students, but he's someone that you can bring into any company, any school district and change the entire focus and energy of the, the team. Uh, as he says, his goal is to create an environment where everyone feels inspired, influential, and engaged. And so what we talk about today, and I would just encourage you um, to, to be ready to take notes on some of these, is just the power of energy. There's some really good nuggets of what we talked about, uh, where he talks about the energy that we're given off and how it's received by others, but also how it can change everything around us. We dive into uh, a new perspective on bullying. It was a really cool conversation, um, or a thought that he gave us, or gave me about how to think about both people involved in a bullying incident. We dive into how to build a culture of engagement in your school and in your classrooms. And so there's some really good advice around there. Uh, another question that has been on my heart for the last couple of years, you all know, is how to avoid burnout. And so. It's great, as we talked about, it's great to have uh, the fight for this great positive energy every day, but at some point, you know, we're not superhuman individuals, at some point that energy uh, or our cup is gonna run empty, right? And so how do we avoid burnout? So there's some good tips on that. And then we dive into some tips from his book, 12 Keys, How to Live a Fully Achieve, uh, How to Live Fully Achieve Greatly and Lead Epic Lives. I really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I didn't know what to expect coming in, but. His energy is infectious. That's the best I can describe it. And so it's a great conversation that I know that you all enjoy. If there's someone in your life who, who needs that message of just positive energy and engagement, if there's someone in your life who you know uh, needs a perspective on how to build their the engagement in the classroom that they've always wanted, or they're struggling with burnout, this is a great conversation to send them. Uh, if you've subscribed already, thank you for subscribing. If you haven't subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. We need all the support that we continue to get. We appreciate your trust in us and enjoy this conversation. Uh, this conversation with Juan is something that I think you'll you'll hit end and you'll walk away ready to give off a crazy new energy to all the people around you. All right, so Juan, thank you so much for being here. We're excited to have you. No, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, excited, to, I'm excited to chat. Uh, for those of you who are not watching on uh uh, the, the TV or your computer, uh, you have the sickest, coolest backdrop I've ever seen. And I want to know how you did it. <laughs> Not a virtual background. Uh, I'm actually in, should I disclose this? Yeah, I guess I can. Uh, I'm in a closet. Uh, this back wall is painted. This is not a virtual background. Uh, these are serving like charcuterie boards from Home Sense or Home Goods. Uh, these lights are from Amazon. Yes, that's a gong. Uh, and yeah, I'm kind of like halfway in a closet currently and have like a standing desk set up i don't feel very claustrophobic but like doesn't brought it up before <laughs> and now maybe i feel a little bit of it uh but yeah yeah we are in a closet it, it's awesome and i love when you told me you made it uh it's i think people you know one of the things i think about leaders leaders have an eye for detail and different types of detail mm -hmm. mine is not you know the, the same eye that you have behind you but i can respect it and it is awesome so again not to distract us from our real conversation today just thought that was really cool uh totally. the first question we start with everybody is who are you and what do you love about what you do oh i love i love that i love the second part of that question yeah. <laughs> uh my name is juan Bendanya. Uh, and I love being able to share stories and give different perspectives to students and be that person that I wish I had in school from someone I would actually listen to. And I love just having a good time at, at, at events and um, being able to meet students where they're at. Like I love the opportunity to be able to do that. Yeah. When you talk about, uh, I, I do think that's interesting because I, I struggle with that and high school, middle school, I mean, heck, elementary school of 
figuring out who I was going to listen to, right? What do you think mm. the key components of being an adult or a person that can uh, command the audience of students? Ooh, meeting them where they are uh, and not trying to meet them where you think they are, because for the most part, that's going to be incorrect. And I find that the biggest gap in that is that we're trying to, a lot of people try and get students to like be at this certain level and communicate them in the way that they like to communicate, as opposed to like a lot of the things and for context, I'm sure Dustin, you did some, you know, fancy intro, uh, but for context, my, over the past seven or eight years, I've been going into schools, conferences, uh, events, primarily working with high school and university students and parents and educators as well. And the message that I have for students oftentimes is the exact same message that parents or educators want to get across the students, but they just, it's all about context. It is not about what's, you know, it's, it's about the container that the message is being held in. So I think the most important thing is meeting them where they are, not where you think they should be. So, how, I mean, I find I have three young kids. It's it's funny how when I was a teacher, I felt like I was really good at it. Now that I have kids, I think I'm pretty terrible at it, which is interesting. <laughs> uh, I think I need to unpack some trauma or something there. But uh, how, how do you begin to help us do that, right? Like how, that's a, you know, I, I meeting where they're at versus where you want them to be can be, you know, tough. Like sometimes I'm actually thinking I'm meeting where my, you know, you've got my three sons behind me. I'm meeting where I think, they're at and I'm not, I'm not even close. And so uh, is there a way to pause, like to remove my ego? What, what are those steps you kind of advise people to do? Well, we, we approach an emotional challenge with a logical solution, which is not the like, what are the words that I need to say when words are actually 8% of communication. So it's really challenging when you're like, and I'm sure and anyone listening or watching this has had the moment with their child or their student where they're like, but I told them, I told <laughs> them this over and over again. I've told them this five or 10 times. It doesn't matter what you said. My Angelou said, it doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you make them feel. And people don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. So I think, especially with educators, I was just in North Dakota. I was working with like 600 educators for a seven hour conference. and a lot of the focus that we that that we directed our energy towards was energy was who who is the person that i'm bringing not what words am i saying not what positive influence am i trying to have all of those things are great intentions but often when students or teens hear that they're like oh this is my time to check out mm. oh they don't get me they don't understand. So I think it is more important to focus on the energy as opposed to the information. And I find that educators oftentimes focus solely or mostly on the information that they're trying to give students as opposed to the energy that they're showing up with. Because if that's why students are able to cram for a test, study like just nonstop day and night, do really well, and then forget everything. Because information without emotion or information without energy is not retained. So I find that when we infuse that level of like, who am I bringing? What energy am I showing up to the conversation, to the interaction, to the how was your day, to the what new friends did you make, to the how was the start of the school year? It changes everything. It is so much more important than the words that you say. So to that point, I mean, you you talk about uh, one of the leadership topics that you talk on, you have a... I will say if anybody's not reached out to you to have you come speak uh, to their educators, they're missing out because you you focus on a range of topics. One that really speaks to my heart right now is uh, the building a culture of engagement. Um, from your viewpoint, what are the keys to creating such a culture in a school, right? And I think it's building off of the answer you just gave. And I'm curious how you help them build that. So number one is energy. Like what energy are you showing up with? Because here's the thing. If you show up with a level two energy, most people are already tired and are exhausted, even though it's the start of the school year currently as it stands. But if you show up with a level two energy to a relationship, is that relationship going to grow? Probably not. If you show up with a level three energy to your health and fitness, are you going to go do the workout and eat the salad? Like most likely not. So it's more so the first thing when it comes to culture, 
And I literally just in Reno talking uh, to the teachers about like, they have a great school culture, but they want to maintain it. So they were like, how do we kind of build off of this? It's first focusing on what energy are you bringing to the building every day? What energy are you showing up with? And then what are the things that you can do to elevate your level of energy on a daily basis? Okay, I'm going to think of things I'm excited about. I'm going to drink more water. I'm going to go outside and, you know, look at something far away as, as opposed to staring at a screen. I'm going to do things that I know give me energy. Okay, great. And then number two would be building, and this is easier said than done, is showing that you care. I think all of the conversations, I feel like I'm in a, in a unique position where a lot of students will tell me a lot of stuff that they don't tell a lot of people, like through Instagram. After speaking at a conference with like two or 3,000 students, I'll get a few hundred DMs from wow. students, some literally pouring out their lives because maybe they don't trust their friend group. Maybe they don't have that relationship with their family where that it's like, I don't want to be vulnerable and show that. And maybe they don't have that relationship with their teacher. So I see, and I have the context of like seeing where students are at and a lot of them, it's just, they don't care. No, my teachers don't care. No, they don't care. They don't even want to be there. Of course, it's going. they're not going to want to share with you or open up or be engaged if, they're, if the people in the building that are leading, the leaders of the culture are disengaged, are checked out, aren't energetic, are tired, are complaining. And I'm not saying, I think, te I think teachers probably have top five most challenging jobs on the face of the planet. And I'm putting that in a category with like nurses and doctor and paramedics. Like being a teacher is like three jobs or four jobs in one. So I get it that it can be exhausting and that it can be tiring. But I think the biggest change for me, because I was that person that was always tired, that was just really just lethargic. And, uh, and like, even when I would wake up and I'd be like, oh, I just want to go back to sleep. Energy is a choice. Because everyone's had that moment where it's like the day before Christmas or the day before a family trip or a day before a super exciting event and you just didn't get much sleep, but you found the energy. Yep. That wasn't an accident. Like energy is a decision that you make. So I would say those two things, energy and caring. Yeah, I think, I mean, I go back to when I was a teacher, I, I do think, I, I didn't think about it as energy. I just thought of it as like, I've got to bring it because I mean, I taught trigonometry. So I knew kids showing up are not going to like, not, no kid, including myself was naturally excited about showing up to a trigonometry class. And, but the totally. other part is, is that I was just cleaning out my basement. One of the reasons I'm up here instead of my office is uh, we're redoing our basement. And I found some old uh, documents from when I was a teacher, you know, 20 some odd years ago. And it was, um, I used to do something on the first day or two of school called a life map where you uh, draw your life in like key moments of like that were happy, sad, scared, whatever that shaped you all the way to like a future you of what you want to be. Then you write that story out. And I did that before we did any math because I always thought like, and I would share mine. I would talk about my parents' divorce. I talk about like in high school, I try to pick out things in high school that like damaged me, like a girlfriend breaking up with me or something on the sports team or something, a job. Um, but then I would talk about my life of what I was scared of and all of that. And that helped us have a connection. What, mm -hmm. what examples have you come across where teachers are doing that either on a it could be like to start a year or just a regular basis where they're uh, helping start opening up those uh, communication channels with a kid to be able to open up to them. Totally. Uh, I think building that, and that's such an awesome idea. Dustin, I think uh, building that initial trust is such a missed opportunity that is like with the students, everything. They, they like, they'll open up even with this. I think we op overcomplicate it a little too much where even I've talked to a few teachers where um, whenever students are coming in, in the door, it's high fives, just high fives all day long. And it's like, it changes when you give a high five, it changes someone's energy. And they actually did a study uh, out of UC Berkeley. This was in 2010. This study blew my mind for any NBA fans out there. And they tried to find the strongest correlation between the winningest teams in the NBA in the preseason. So they did the study in the preseason, like before any regu regulation playing. Okay, so they did the study to try and find, like, was it the teams with the best players or the most money, whatever it was. And they found that the strongest correlation that determined who won the championship, and they backdated this years, even before the study was done, and it checked out, wasn't the teams with the most amount of money, 
It was not the teams with the best player averages. It wasn't the teams with the best players. It was the teams with the most touches. Wow. Most fist bumps, most high fives. The most touches were the ones that predicted the championship because it built a level of trust between the players that ultimately helped them win. So I think little things like that are, are personally my favorite things that teachers have done where students feel like, oh, they see me. I matter. I'm a part of something. Yep. They see me. They're giving me a high five. I matter. I'm not invisible, which a lot of students do feel like they are. Yep. And I'm a part of something. I'm a part of this classroom. So I think that's one thing. And another thing, just building like a culture within the classroom of like, what are our goals collectively? Not about trigonometry, not about history, not about world studies. What is our goal as a classroom? Where do, how do we want to be every day? What do we want to implement? And getting students input on like, what do we want to build here? Because then when they're a part of building it, they feel some accountability and ownership for adding to that culture. Like it's just, it's game changing when you do something like that. So true. But I mean, you said you work with high school uh, folks a lot as well. So I think about uh, in the negative sense, you know, I feel like there's plenty of educators at the high school level that think they're professors in the minor leagues uh, ready to go up to the majors at the university level. So they're just teaching their subject, not the kids. And I mean, I think even at the major league, you know, if, if that's how you want to define it, like the university level building relationships with uh, your, your students matters so much. How do you handle when I'm sure this had to happen and hopefully it's evolved over the last eight or nine years that you've been doing this across the globe. But how do you handle when they say, you know, I teach trigonometry or I teach science. I've got, I can't waste any time to do all this other stuff. I've got to get through my learning objectives or whatever else. What's your response to that? Yeah, I think it's, do you have 30 seconds? Do you have a minute and a half? What would, what would you put a value? Like, what would the value be? of your students really engaged in the class if they were actually learning the things that you were saying and you wouldn't have to go over the same thing over and over again and spend that additional time going over if they could hear it once and it could just stick. Yep. Because when you're listening passively to a presenter, to a speaker, to a teacher, you're on average, we're retaining 10% of what that person said. 10% after a week's time. If you take notes, and are engaged in terms of like physically taking notes, that number jumps to 70. So a lot of times when students are sitting in a lecture and they're just, they got one AirPod in, but you can't really see it because they have long hair. And like, they're just checked out. They're getting 10%, if not less, because they're not even listening. (laughs) That's if you're listening. So if you create a culture in your classroom of like, y'all, here's the truth. These are things that we've got to get done in this class. These are the things that we need to learn to be able to get this credit and to be able to move you forward in whatever you're after, post-secondary, whatever it may be, depending on the grade level. How about this? And like putting, making them involved in the process of deciding because then, okay, now they're more engaged. Now they're actually maybe taking notes. Now they're excited about doing well because they like you and they respect you and they want to show you that you're doing well in their class, you you have double the amount of time because you don't have to reiterate because they're actually engaged in taking notes. So to those people I say, I don't have the time, change your level of engagement and you'll be, the time that you do have will be so much more effective because they'll be listening. Right. That's the, that's the yeah. key. It's an illusion, right? It's an illusion. If I just say to the objectives, you're, you're focusing on, I'm teaching this, so they must be retaining it as opposed to creating an environment where retention is just the norm, right? Yes, which is just not true. I don't, I don't remember how to do long division. <laughs> I don't. But I guarantee if I had a teacher like Miss Paula Dano, like my drama teacher in grade 10, if I had a teacher like Miss Paula Dano, I guarantee I could do long division on this call. But I can't. So one of the questions as you're talking, like I, I do love your take on energy because I do think it matters and it's transferable, right? And so one one of the places where I think about my wife who you know busts her tail as a teacher and all of our friends who are just killing themselves, they are the people who bring energy every day. How 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 do we help them avoid burnout while they're the ones that have to keep pouring their cup over to folks who may have empty cups? Mm-hmm. Total great question. 
I think it's it, we you got to kind of stand door or stand guard at the door of your energy and be able to practice the muscle of saying no mm. to things because it isn't when you're saying yes to something you're also saying no to something else and I find that teachers are naturally so giving and so like I want to do everything in the bake sale and this thing and that thing, and they're just like they want to do everything because it is a position of like I want to serve. I, I want to be able to help. I want to inspire the next generation. So they are naturally such a giving type. But I think the hardest thing, especially for teachers that are burning the candle on both ends and they are just doing the most, is practicing the skill set. It is a skill set of saying no constantly. No, I can't do that. No, I can't volunteer for that. No, I'm not going to be able to do that. No, I'm not going to take that extra volunteer role out. No, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm going to take my Sunday. Like, I think the process of avoiding, because the process of avoiding burnout is being able to create space so it doesn't have it doesn't have a way in. So you yeah. create space for yourself and and take care of your energy of like, obviously, you know, getting good sleep and drinking water and eating moderately healthy, all those things can contribute. But I think at the end of the day, it is saying no and blocking out a lot of things that aren't a necessity. It's a lot of things, no, we have to do it. But if I don't volunteer for the PTA, then the chair is going to like at the next meeting is going to say that I wasn't helpful and, but I'm a helpful person. So that doesn't align with who I am. Like just say no. Because yeah. then by saying no, you're saying yes to yourself. That's awesome. Uh, one of the topics I, I was curious about personally is that my uh, third grader and first grader have been talking a little bit about bullying lately. And uh, we've been trying to make sure that they are not the bullies, although that could happen at some point. But um, mm -hmm. I know you've written about uh, bullying in your life. And I'm just curious, one, how did a bullying experience impact you and shape you into who you are today? And how do you encourage uh, young people and teachers to engage effectively in creating a culture where bullying is not even uh, a thing or as close to not a thing as possible. I think it's for, for students, but also for teachers, it's understanding where bullying is coming from because oftentimes we penalize and berate the bully when the reality is the bully is the person that's hurting the most and they are the one that is actually struggling and needs the support. It just doesn't look that way. And I'm not saying that justifies the bullying. And I'm not saying that that is correct or that that should be accepted. But what I'm saying is that when I was in grade, I think this must have been grade five or six, there was a bully dean in my school that would constantly just give me so much grief. And I, it was like a mixture of like fear and just the, and, and like self, I felt so self-conscious and, and I never understood. I was like, why, like, why me? And why all of these other, like, why are you the way that you are? Why can't you yep. just be nice? Cause I was raised to, you know, be kind to other people, even if they don't give you a reason to. And he would just always just bully and be so harsh to me and to other people in the school. And I remember one morning I was being picked up from school. I, I was waiting, um, you know, waiting just out front of the school. And I see Dean, all these students getting picked up by their parents, um, you know, taken, and it, this was like a Friday and taken, you know, for, to go to the mall or go to the movies or go off for the weekend, like wherever it was, it was like a nice summer day just outside of Toronto here. And I, I see Dean and he's standing there and I like don't want to approach him because I'm still afraid. I'm still this like socially awkward, like fifth or sixth grader. And I like, don't look at me, don't see me. And I remember I look over and I see him get into a taxi. And I was, and it like, and you know, it was the contrast of seeing all of these other students get picked up by their mom and their dad, sometimes both. And he was being picked up in a taxi. And I was like, huh maybe he's having a hard time. Mm. Mm. And that, like, in that moment thereafter, I realized and had a, a deeper appreciation for bullies where I'm like, they are just going through a hard time and they have no, they have no way of building themselves up, but by tearing other people down. Mm. If we built a culture where a student gets bullied by someone or made fun of by someone, and that person genuinely is like, just has the self-confidence and self-worth to be like, okay, I, I understand that that's your opinion, that's your view, but like, are you okay? Are you good? And that's a hard thing to do. And especially for teachers, I think the opportunity that we have as leaders in a school 
uh, even at a conference in a student environment is not seeing those students as bullies because what happens is there is something called the psychology of personalities. When we give something an identity, an alter ego, we will remain consistent with how we identify ourselves. It's one of our strongest unconscious needs. We will remain consistent. If you're like a Leafs fan, bless your heart if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, you will remain consistent. Your heart's consistent been broken with, years and years and years. <laughs> I know. You will remain consistent with that identity. So <laughs> if we give someone the identity of you're a bully, they're going, oh, I guess I'm a bully. What do bullies do? Oh, they bully people. I guess I should start. I guess I should continue. So it's not, it's just like someone saying, I'm stressed. No, you're not. You have moments of stress. It's like saying, I am anxious. No, you're not. You have moments or seasons of anxiety. You have moments of stress. You have moments of, even you have moments like I was a kid growing up where I struggled with self-worth. I was depressed. I was at a point where I didn't really see a way out. Yeah. And I remember I thought I was depressed. I had moments and I had a season of depression. And as soon as you can realize that you are not the characteristics, you are not defined by the characteristics that you think make make you who you are. Like you have a moment where you bullied someone. You are not a bully. There's a massive difference. But we associate people to the identity as opposed to dissociate them from the action. We have to get, listen, you had a moment where you bullied. Okay, that's all right. Are you okay? You're not a bully. You're not. And I've told, and I've, I've called out bullies on this in schools because I see them and I'm an external factor coming out. Someone in their twenties that is bigger than they are and <laughs> can say like, Hey, like, you know, you're not like, that's not you, you know, that was just like a moment that you had. And they're like, well, no. And I was like, no, but like, are you good? Like, listen, I'm just a Canadian coming in here and like, I fly out tomorrow, but like, are you good? Yeah. Sometimes they're not. Most of the times they're not. That's so, rich. I appreciate that yeah. perspective a lot. Um, Cause to your point, like, you know, I find that a lot of teachers, including myself, sometimes with my kids, I'm like, don't bully each other. You, you, it's kind of a righteous anger. Like you want to protect someone who is being mistreated, but as educators, we are called to love and serve everyone. I mean, as people were called to love and serve everyone, but definitely in educators, it's how do we help develop both kids, right? We can't just push For off sure. the quote unquote labeled bully. Um, I, I, I really appreciate that wisdom. Thank you for that. So another thing that happened around 12, is this right? You had an epiphany around the age of 12 that you knew what you wanted to do with your life. And I think you're doing it now. Is that, is that accurate? Cause that that's rare for people to have a kind of epiphany that early in life. Well, it was like, I had epiphany upon epiphany upon epiphany. Cause I had this epiphany where I was like, Ooh, okay, this is, this is exactly what I want to do. But then all of the like stories came up, you yeah. know, of like, Oh, you can't do that. Well, you could never do like, you don't have the confidence for that. Well, how do you even, uh, what kind of career is that? Like, what do you mean? So I bounced around from idea to idea to idea as like, as a kid, and then finally like landed on certain things, but there was so much fear behind that. There was so much like, who am I to do that thing? So it wasn't until 19, yep. 18, 19, that I like really dove in and I was like, okay, this is, this is the thing that I really want to be doing um, and took that plunge. And it was to the point where I was like, at that moment, I was horrible at speaking <laughs> in front of groups. Like genu genuinely, a lot of my speaker friends are naturally talented at communication and at rhetoric. They are very good at talking to people. And then someone saw them speak and was like, Ooh, you're really good at that. You should do that. And they were like, Oh, and then they just started. I had the opposite experience. Like my first presentation was for 170 year olds at seven in the morning while they were eating breakfast. And I was <laughs> that 19. Sounds terrible. It was not a good time at all. I just didn't ask the audience demographic <laughs> mistake. Like it was really not good. So, but I just had this relentless, like, I want to figure this out. But I was not at the beginning. I was like the most unlikely person to be doing this as a full-time 
career well, now. I assume part of figuring that out is really finding your voice and knowing like the story to tell. And so your book, which I've read, which is uh, 12 Keys, How to Live Fully, Achieve Greatly, and Lead Epic Lives, right? Um, to me, I found it as a super easy, quick read, but also full of like very practical things I can do now. And I love the reflections at the end of every chapter. And so I, I want to dive into a few of those. If you want to go off offline to something that's on your heart, feel free to take me there. But, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that uh, I think about just with my kids right now, or as a teacher was helping my students overcome their psychological fear of failure. Right. And I think you kind of put the big four in there and I'm curious what are your, what's your advice for that? Or what's the advice you, you commonly give for people who are trying to get over a fear of failure? I think in terms of what is really fear, fear is never the facts, rarely the facts. It is our perception of the facts. So I think in terms of like fear of failing, it is an outcome that hasn't even happened yet. And I give the example of like fear of public speaking, 75% of the population has glossophobia, which is the fear of speaking in front of groups. But I would say no one has the fear of public speaking because if you're in a room by yourself, you'd be able to talk. Right. <laughs> so it's like you're afraid of being judged. You're afraid of failing. You're afraid of messing up. But it isn't the failure that you're afraid of. It's that how you will be seen after you fail, if that makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Where it's like, okay, I failed. So I'm going to have less love. <clears throat> I'm going to be more judged. I'm going to have less respect. I'm going to have less friends. And logically, this sounds like, no, that's actually not true. But emotionally, it feels like the truth. Right. It feels like, wait, no, if if we fail at this thing, we're just like, just like getting into, you know, a school and like, right. Or getting into law school or getting into an Ivy league school. It's like, I'm going to fail. I'm going to be rejected. And I'm never going to get into another school ever again. That's oftentimes the story that we run in our minds of like, what is your, what is your perception of the facts that are happening right now? Because all fear is literally just perception. You're not afraid of turbulence on a plane. You're afraid of the perception that it's going to go down. You're not afraid of public speaking. You're not afraid of the perception that you're going to be judged. You're not afraid of failure. You're afraid of how you're going to be seen after you fail. And I think the association needs to be that failure is just information. If you, for example, like growing up uh, all my life in in high school and in college, I taught snowboarding. I was a snowboard instructor. That was like my college university job in high school. And a lot of times, like snowboarding is literally 85 to 90% mental psychology and 10 to 15% the actual skill set. That seems crazy to me because I feel like there's balance, there's all the stuff. (laughs) 90%. If you, here's the thing. If you put a snowboard down a mountain, it will go down perfectly without fail. (laughs) The problem is when you put a human on it. That's the issue. When you put a human being on the board, because then they have all their fears, all their limitations, and then they do, they make the board do some crazy stuff and then they fall. So I think in, in the parallel of snowboarding, it's like you have to catch an edge to learn how to not to. You have to fall really hard on your back edge or turning to know how far you can push it. So I think the the moments where I had the most growth in terms of speaking, in terms of the profession that I'm in now, is the speeches that really didn't go well. Mm. Those are the ones where I learned the most, but it needs to be a perception of failure that is rooted in growth, not in this is defining who I am. Is that kind of part of, you talk about how to break through limitations. And I, I put a quote on here about struggle is not optional. Is that kind of similar in that mindset of like, that's that's how you get through those limitations is really embrace the struggle? Totally. It, it's like, it's like if, you, if you go, if you want to grow a muscle, say you want to grow your legs and you go in and you just do like free squats with like no weight for the rest of your life, your body adapts. And it will be able to do those 10 squats without any weight for the rest of, for the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years without any real struggle. Great. feels good. I can squat, but there is no growth in that. You are not getting stronger. So I think struggle is required when it comes to growth. And there's, there's like a balance between struggling too much where you just check out and struggling not enough where you just is just boring. So you want to find the balance of like every single day for me, I'm like, what are the things that, what are the hardest parts of my day? What are the hardest parts of my week? What are the things that I'm really struggling with? 
And how do I lean into those first? Mm. Because if we're not constant, like I'm always seeking discomfort, seeking struggle, seeking the places that will push me because that's how you expand in anything. That's how you build confidence in anything. So I, I love that. I think, you know, you also talk about comfort being the enemy of all growth. And I find that like when I get too comfortable, that's when I get uh, freak. I start freaking out a little bit. And so I'm curious, how do you help people that are in that kind of comfortability rut get out of it? Because, you know, otherwise they're just gonna keep doing what they've always done and never, never actually grow and break through. For sure. I think, uh, and I, I wish I knew the direct quote, this is not going to be the specific, the accurate quote, but it's something along the lines, there was a neuroscientist based out of Stanford that said, the number one, one of the best, most effective ways of overcoming fear and building courage is exposure. Hmm. One of the best ways to overcome fear and to build courage is exposure, which means if you're afraid of flying, get on a plane. If you're afraid of speaking, Get in front of people constantly. If you're afraid of talking to that person, go up to them and say, hi, I think here's, there's this biggest, there's such a big misconception around, like, I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard the like, step out of your comfort zone. Life begins after your comfort zone, step outside your comfort zone. But there's a problem with that advice. Because typically when people step out of their comfort zone, they go say hi to someone and they get rejected or they try something and they don't make it or they build the, you know, a side hustle of business and it fails. They basically like do the hokey pokey with their comfort zone. They like put one foot in and then one foot out and they kind of like just kind of inch out, like touch. Oh, that's really scary. And then they come back. So I think there's outside of our comfort zone, there's a bunch of opportunities, relationships, people, that we can that will grow us as a human being. The problem is people see it as a two-way street. They're like, okay, I'm gonna go try this and I'm gonna come back. That's not growth. That's just experimentation. Right. That's just trying new things. So I think it isn't about stepping outside of your comfort zone. It is about expanding it. It's yeah. about expanding. So those those things, those opportunities, those scary experiences become the new normal. How do you make those things the new normal? Constant exposure. Constant so, exposure. You are not going to get comfortable or confident at speaking unless you've given 59 presentations. That's awesome. Another you thing know? we talk, talk about is like when I think about, um, you know, that exposure or the courage to break that comfortability, you know, you talk about the power of clarity, right? Or having clear vision or uh, I'm curious about that because I think there's times in my life where clarity comes easy. And there's times where I cannot figure it out to save my life. And I'm curious how you help people that are in those seasons of life where they want clarity, they know it's right, they know that clarity is power, like you say, but they can't figure it out. How do you help people find that clarity in their life? I think it's understanding that you're not going to find it on the first try. And I think people just run away from this, this idea of finding real clarity because it kind of scares them. Because if you find the clarity, then you have to do something about it and you have to take action anyways. So a lot of people have this idea of clarity. You see it when people set goals at the beginning of the year. They set such vague goals. For example, it's like, okay, I want to go to, I want to go travel and you have a pilot that could take you anywhere in the world. And then they're like, ooh, okay, I want to go to Europe. It's like, it's pretty vague. Where in Europe? How is that pilot supposed to get you there? So people's goals and overall directions are so vague, oftentimes to keep them safe yep. and to avoid any real failure. Because if you don't have clarity, you can't take action. If you don't take action, you won't get any results either in success or failure. So yep. then you just like are safe and you're in this little bubble. So I think the number one thing is understanding that you're not going to get clarity on the first try. And it's like going to the mall and being on a shopping spree you're not going to try a pair of jeans on. If you've ever been shopping for jeans, you're not going to try a pair of jeans on and be like, these fit perfectly. That never happens. You have to try like five different pairs in different cuts. And this boot cut fit different than this slim fit. And this slim fit, fit like you have to try what works for you. I think it's the same in terms of career mm. for a lot of students that are so confused on career where before call it 20 years ago, people went to you know a four-year degree, they got a job, they did that job for 40, 50 years, then they retired and had their pension, whatever it is, and then they retired and lived ha happily ever after. The average person now is switching their career every 10 years. The average wow. college or university grad 
is changing their major four times. Four times. People are more confused than ever. But I don't think it's a bad thing because at least having a little bit of confusion paired with some action can have you just doing a tasting menu of like trying different things out and seeing what you actually like. But I think the what isn't the answer is just staying still and not doing anything because then you won't get any clarity ever. Well, part of that is, so again, I think uh, I love how, you know, your 12 keys kind of build off of each other, right? Which obviously they're meant to, or else it wouldn't be a well-written book. But uh, thinking that through of like, all right, well, if, if I have a clear vision, crap, I'm going to have to do a lot probably. And it's, it's, I can never stop. And you dive into later, how do you master your time? So I feel like that has something to do with procrastinating or, you know, daily rituals. You said three to thrive or something you talked about in there. So I, I'm curious, what's your advice for helping folks who procrastinate and who don't really, who kind of let time happen to them versus mastering their day-to-day? I think it's rooted in motivation. And like procrastination is just, I don't feel motivated to do anything. I don't feel motivated to do the work. Okay, great. So where does motivation come from? I think a lot of times people think that motivation is just something that is going to strike them. And they're like, I feel motivated because we have moments where we feel super motivated, inspired. And it seems like for no reason. So then we think that it's just something that happens when it's not. The root word of motivation is motive, which means reasons. The reason why people aren't motivated is because they don't have strong enough reasons. Like motive literally comes from the Latin word motivus, which means a moving cause. So it's thinking about what is my reason? The reason why people procrastinate is because something isn't important enough. If they literally said, you have to do this essay or everyone you know about dies, you're going to do the essay. (laughs) And yes, that's a drastic example, but it's the truth. Like you have to see, it's like, okay, I want to stop procrastinating on this. What is your reason? What is your reason why? Because if you do not have a strong enough reason, things are unimportant. And when something's unimportant, people quit every day of the week. So I think it's upping your motive, which is why, why are you doing it? Why are you doing, why are you doing the thing that you do? Uh, Before we get to our last four questions that we ask everybody, kind of like rapid fire questions. uh, I'm curious, what's, what's been the biggest takeaway or impact that have been most common for you of people who've read the book or heard you speak to the topics of the book? Uh, that something that you just like, again, I know it's specific to everybody because there's 12 keys, but if there's a trend that you've noticed, I'd be really interested in. I would say, and this is something I've just, I'm trying to pull the most recent example from like presentations from speeches yeah. um, where I get to hang out with students in person and, and hear from them afterwards, where I think the ability to be themselves um and just be not who their friends want them to be, not who their parents suggest they should be, not what society pushes them to be, like really them and accepting themselves. And I think it comes back to this notion of confidence where my message and my main goal has moved towards more so around confidence, because for me, that has been the number one skill set that has been the most useful period in my entire life in terms of career, relationships, self has been confidence. And it is one of the most evident things that students are really struggling with. So I think the, oh, you help me be a little bit more of myself yep. is like, yeah, that, that would be the one. That's awesome. All right. So uh, we, I, I promised I would get you out of here on time. So uh, as Abby is probably looking at the time here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, one of the questions that we'd love to ask is, Everyone, we find that great leaders have habits and disciplines that they do on a daily basis or a weekly basis that makes them the best version of themselves. What's a habit or discipline or multiple ones that help, that you try to do every day to bring the energy and the positive nature that you have? Ooh, uh, 100%. I have a few. Uh, number one is work out every single day. I wake up at 530 in the morning um, and I don't. So one is working out because that adds to my energy more than anything else. And if I'm like energetically primed everything in my day and ever, especially like showing up for a presentation, like I'm this annoying all the time. Um, so working out is definitely number one. Number two is waking up at 5.30 in the morning. Why? Because I hate it. I absolutely despise waking up and it's dark, especially here in Toronto when it's winter and it's cold and, and you just want to be asleep and it's horrible. I hate I hate everything in the world for eight minutes in the morning when I wake up. 
But the reason I do it is because it shows me that I'm not going to let my mind make the decisions. I'm the one calling the shots in the day. Mm. I'm the one that's making the decision. So then that's the hardest part of my day. Anything else that happens is a cakewalk compared to waking up at 5.30. So I would say those two daily habits and also, you know, eating healthy, drinking water, but like those two are two things that have changed my life more than anything. Like I was, um, uh, this had to be seven years ago, eight years ago now, I was 70 pounds more than I am right now. Uh, considered obese for my age and height. Um, and I remember I, I was just exhausted all the time. I hated my level of energy. I hated the way that I felt on a constant basis. I would always get sick. And I've realized that the most important thing, if you do not have a solid level of energy and a solid level of health, nothing else matters. Because if, if you're dead, relationships don't matter finances don't matter career doesn't matter if you are not if you do not have your health so those two things are by far the most important things i do on a daily basis that's awesome all right uh favorite book you've read recently or over your you know life that you just think other people have to check out immediately oh one or you could do a couple i don't care i i I, I would name like three three or four yeah i'll give you top three uh number one is alchemist the Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, uh, just amazing hero's journey that you need to read to get re-inspired. I read it like a few times, like I've read it like three times. I'm going to read it a fourth. I do it every like 18 months. Uh, number two, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Um, just the number one book on habits, period. Uh, and number three, The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. That book talks about the flow state, that altered state of consciousness when you focus on something and hours become minutes and like time slows down like that book. And it's about like elite level athletes, like base jumpers, skydivers, snowboarders. It is unbelievable into unpacking the flow state, which if yeah. you've not heard of the flow state, Google the flow state, look at Dr. Zikamahili's work, uh, look at Stephen Kotler's work because it is unbelievable. So those three. For sure. I have, I have athlete friends and coaches. The flow state is something very real, but I've not read that book. And so Dude, it is, I am pumped so right good. <laughs> you need to read it. It's so good. All right. I'm really interested about this question too. Uh, when you're out and about, whether it's working out, you know, walking around uh, downtown Toronto, if you're even close to downtown Toronto, Toronto's massive. So there's like seven downtowns, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Uh, or, you know, snowboarding. What's on, what kind of music's on your playlist? What are your favorite artists? What are favorite songs? So I listen to everything. Like this morning in the gym, oftentimes it's like Drake, because I'm from Toronto, uh, <laughs> uh, some rap, some like EDM. Uh, I listen to a ton of Spanish music. So like I'm originally from Nicaragua. uh, So like Spanish music is a huge part of my culture. Um, But also like I had a country music phase a few years back. Listen to country, listen to like instrumental. So like the Avengers, uh, Transformers, like Hans Zimmer, uh, Steven Jablowski. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. But those like instrumentals just get me fired up uh, (laughs) for like working and just doing a work session where I'm writing another book. Um, putting together the proposal right now uh, to launch, to start like shopping out uh, this coming year. And it's going to be on confidence. So whenever I'm working on that proposal, it's just like inspiring instrumentals, just like from like Inception and Avatar and all of those sorts of things. So yeah, but literally everything, everything. I I love that. I find when I'm having to do a hard, thoughtful work with writing, I need, um, like jazz with no words. And so I actually prefer your take on the no words instrumental. For sure. Because it distracts. Yeah. Whenever I'm like speech prepping, I don't need additional words to like yeah. accidentally put like a song lyric into something I'm trying to say. So you're obviously a, a, an incredible thought leader. I assume you're surrounded by other thought leaders, whether it's something that you've shared with a lot of audiences recently or something you've heard or come across or read yourself. I'm curious, what's the best advice you have for leaders these days who are leading in this current climate, uh, particularly in the education climate that you're kind of experiencing? Ooh, um, I think the 80% of the conversations around leadership around leading others, when I or 90% even, when I think it should be backwards, I think it should be 80 to 90% leading yourself. Hmm. 
and 10% leading others. Because if you lead yourself effectively, a byproduct of that is that you're able to lead other people. Oftentimes we try to jump right to leading others and we don't think about leading ourselves and you cannot lead others effectively, period, if you are not leading yourself. Just yeah, I've, I'm sure that's been a problem throughout life. I and mean, our book, The Seven Habits, that kind of based or our, our built our organization off of, is about leading self before leading others. And I feel like that's yeah. obviously been a challenge throughout history. But and maybe I'm getting so old now, where I'm like the get off your get off my lawn kind of stage. But I, I feel like it's rampant everywhere. I feel like everyone wants to be an influencer or yeah. leader of sorts, but they don't want to work on the meat of themselves too often or look in the mirror too much. Everyone wants to matter. Everyone wants to have status. Everyone wants to make yeah. more money, drive a nice car, do the thing, just to feel like they're important. But it, when it comes to doing that, they don't see the amount of work that is put in. It's like, don't be surprised when you you know knock on the door of opportunity and work answers. <laughs> like uh, people are shocked when that happens. They're like, wait, what? I thought I was going to be greeted with like a margarita. Uh, so I think it's, it's working on the self work of like leading yourself. Cause if you are a like high performing, feel great energy out of nine or 10, like really connected, engaged, people are going to be drawn to that. People are naturally like, Oh, I want to hear what they have to say. Cause people don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. So if you make people feel a certain kind of way, they will follow you. They will listen to you. They will be inspired by you, not by the words, but by who you are. Well, Juan, this was awesome. I now understand fully. I knew before we uh, invited you on the podcast, what made you special, but obviously uh, the energy you bring is incredibly refreshing. And I'm uh, very thankful that that's been a call in your life because, you know, someone, I feel like I'm, I'm fortunate to have a lot of really cool people around me. Uh, and I feel like the energy you have, I can feel it all the way. You know, I live in St. Louis. I'm from Toronto and I just encourage you to keep doing it because I think you're going to change a lot of lives through that. Dude, I appreciate that. And if I'm ever in St. Louis and I, I would have to look at my calendar because I know 2023, I may be in St. Louis at some <laughs> point for an event. We will definitely have to go grab, grab a bite and, and hang while I'm, while I'm in town. I would, I would love that, but uh, I appreciate who you are, what you do, and I wish you nothing but the best. And when you have that second book come out, let's, let's wrap again and 100%. Uh, get you more audience. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Awesome, man. Thank you so much. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.